Hello and welcome to the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast. I'm your host, Nick Galetti. This is part eight of our Basic Doctrine series, going over the doctrine of marriage and family. Our guest on this episode is a professor from BYU, Justin Dyer, who is a teacher of the Marriage and Family course and is a, we'll go ahead and call him an expert on this doctrine, even though it may imply to some people that he's an expert at the actual living of it. Um, He's well-versed, we should say, in the doctrine and history and teachings about the marriage and the family. Before we get into that interview, we're going to do a reading from the church's website on basic doctrines of the church under the heading of marriage and family. It reads, Marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God, and the family is central to his plan of salvation and to our happiness. Happiness in family life is most likely to be achieved when founded upon the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sacred powers of procreation are to be employed only between a man and a woman, lawfully wedded as husband and wife. Parents are to multiply and replenish the earth, rear their children in love and righteousness, and provide for the physical and spiritual needs of their children. Husband and wife have a solemn responsibility to love and care for each other. Fathers are to provide over their families in love and righteousness, and provide the necessities of life. Mothers are primarily responsible for the nurture of their children. In these sacred responsibilities, fathers and mothers are obligated to help one another as equal partners. The divine plan of happiness enables family relationships to continue beyond the grave. The earth was created and the gospel was revealed so that families could be formed, sealed, and exalted eternally. For additional references, please read The Family of Proclamation to the World. Here now is our interview with Justin Dyer. W. Justin Dyer received his Ph.D. in Human and Community Development. He is on the faculty at BYU in the Religious Education Department and has been there since about 2015 and currently teaches the Eternal Family course. He also has a, an overall rating of 4.2 out of 5 on RateMyProfessor.com, so that means he's a good guy to listen to. Uh, so thank you for joining us today. Great, great to be here. Thank you. It's good to be at least a 4.2. I That's right. appreciate you bringing that in. <laughs> so um, you're joining us today to discuss the doctrine of marriage and the family in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that is a particular subject matter that is controversial to some, but it is certainly something that the church has taught for quite a number of years. And, and we can echo those teachings back throughout all time in many respects. So what would we call this eternal salvific doctrine of marriage and the family? You know, like you say, that it's something that has been a little controversial lately, and I can't think of any other topic that the leaders of the church have gone to great lengths to try and establish this is the doctrine. In fact, this is something that won't change, right? There's other things about marriage and family that change, very recently, we had the example of in North America, it used to be that you had to wait a year yes. after you were married civilly to be married in the temple. That's now changed. Now you can be married right away after. That's an example of a policy that the church has that will change. But then again, the brethren have been very specific about there is some doctrine of the family. And they've outlined that, of course, I think the best place is the family proclamation to the world. It's given back in 1995. 
And at the time, President Hinckley really went over that there was a need for a reiteration of things that have been taught by the prophets since the beginning of time. In fact, uh, Elder Robert D. Hales, a year later in a conference in 1996, said that the principles of the proclamation, many of those have been taught since the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world. So if you want to know the kinds of things that were taught primordially, well, guess what? We have there the family is. proclamation that outlines some of these really important principles. And of course, one of those right up front is that marriage is ordained of God. Marriage between man and woman is ordained of God. Yeah. And that becomes a central feature of all the other, of all the other aspects of the proclamation that uh, kids, children, having children is a commandment. And children are an heritage of the Lord, it talks about in the proclamation. So, I would say that foundationally, you have that marriage between a man and woman is ordained of God. And as part of that, right there at the beginning of the proclamation, it talks about how we have heavenly parents. Mm -hmm. That marriage is not just something that's nice, that's really useful, that's <laughs> instrumental, if you will, that, hey, it helps us to get through this life, but it's actually something that connects with what God does and the attributes of God, having heavenly parents, having a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. It's a definition of deity in our faith. Oh, absolutely. It's a definition of deity in our faith that, um, in fact, I'll read something that uh, Elder James E. Talmadge wrote, and I think this is really fascinating. He said that neither of the sexes is complete in itself as a counterpart of deity. In other words, deity consists of male and female. That's what, right. when we're talking about an exalted being, deity as in God the Father, we're talking about God the Father and God the Mother, that we have two heavenly parents. Yeah. Now, we don't discuss heavenly mother as frequently as we do heavenly father. Uh, some people have ascribed that to, well, we shouldn't talk about her because uh, she's too sacred to discuss. Um, no apostle has ever said that. Right. Some people mistake the silence on Heavenly Mother for it being Heavenly Mother being secret, secret. Rather, it's her the doctrine of Heavenly Mother is simply sacred, and we would treat it like we would treat any other other doctrine. But somebody once mentioned to me, if you wanted to hide the fact that we have a Heavenly Mother, you probably wouldn't put that in a proclamation to the entire world. Right. That it forms such an important foundation of of what we of what we believe in. Yeah. So this is the doctrine of marriage, that it is necessary for our exaltation, right? And, and so that, that's kind of always been. That's why we perform these ordinances in temples, and they stretch throughout and have efficacy throughout eternity. So what about the family, though? I mean, that is the foundation of a family, but what about the necessity of children? Well, that's a great, that's a great question. So we can go back to just Adam and Eve, to, to talk about that. So you have God creating this world, all the different creative periods, and then you have him creating man and woman. And it's interesting, you have all the different parts of the creation where God says, created the seas, and that was good, and the animals, and that was good. He created man, and then he said, this is not good. This, it's not good for man to be alone, I yeah. should say. It's not man is good, but it's not good for man to be alone, so we need to have the female, and that makes a good. The male and female together make a good. And then, of course, the first commandment that he gives to Adam and Eve is have children. Yeah. And the family proclamation talks about how that's 
uh, commandment that hasn't been rescinded, that's something that we need to continue with. We need to continue to have children. I find it interesting if you think about the pre-mortal life, you had Heavenly Father, you had Heavenly Mother, and you had us, their children. And then you have Adam, you have Eve, and then you have children. The first thing they say to Adam and Eve is essentially, well, let's replicate what we saw in heaven, mother and a father with children. And that being the pattern and our apprenticeship, if you will, to become like our heavenly parents. Yeah. I love Doctrine and Covenants 132 verse 19, where at the very end there, it talks about, well, at the beginning it says that if a man and woman are married and it's sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise and then all these things and all these wonderful blessings come to them. And then it talks about how they shall increase in seed forever. And it talks about that being the glory of the celestial kingdom is an increase in their posterity. And so the very glory of the celestial kingdom is children. And that then, of course, connects with what we learn from Moses. The Lord tells Moses, behold, this is my work and my glory. So we actually get this fascinating definition of God's work and glory. What? To bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of each one of us. Yeah. You know, God's children. And so that's what God does. He works with his kids. And if we're going to be like God, we have to learn how to work with our children have that apprenticeship. Now, it's really important to note that in this life, we're not going to make it all the way to godhood, right? That We all know that. We're all very, very familiar with that concept. Right. We're not making it to godhood in this life. And so, for some individuals, they're not going to have their own biological children in this life. They might not even get married in this life. And that's okay. We have a really long way to go, right? There's a number of reasons. We know that we've had those commandments, and so we need to be working towards that. But if that doesn't happen to happen in this life, as long as we're righteous, as long as we're staying with the Savior, as long as we're keeping our covenants, we're going to have everything. And so sometimes we can get a little too fixated on, I have to check these certain boxes in this life. Those are really critical and important foundational things to do. But guess what? We have an eternity. And if we focus on the Savior, if we focus on our covenants and following that path, the other aspects of family life are going to naturally work themselves out. It's, it's one of those things where we, we say it's required, it's necessary, but when is not as critical, right? It's, it's about us preparing to get there, right? right. It's about us be, being prepared, working towards that goal. Uh, that's, that's really the important aspect here. As long as we're following that path, we're working on that goal and understanding and appreciating that. As part of my class that I teach on the eternal family, one of the things that we try and help students get excited about is family life, that it is such a wonderful place to learn, to grow, to do things we just can't do in, in any other location. But even if somebody's not married, if they don't have that, there's the great point uh, that Sherry Dew has made in the past multiple times, that Eve was called the mother of all living before she even had a child. We don't need to have our own biological children to begin to enact a fatherhood or a motherhood role. And what a fatherhood, motherhood, motherhood role, a lot of that is simply ministering to others. You're ministering to your children. You're trying to figure out what they need and how do you supply that to them. Yeah. And so our work in the church, our work with our neighbors, our work with our siblings, our work with our parents, all of that can be an expression of 
a motherhood or a fatherhood role. Okay. Well, we do have this family proclamation, which we've talked a lot about, and I think that is a really good starting source for people. We also know that there's general conference talks and the scriptures that can speak to family resources. But the family proclamation is one of those interesting documents that has both doctrines and policies and practices in a way. There's ideals, but also an understanding that sometimes those ideals may not come into play. So it's one of those, uh, it's a challenge, right? It's part of the fun of discovering what is a doctrine and what is a policy and being able to separate those two. And the family proclamation is a very good example of of that. Sure. Uh, There are aspects of the proclamation you go to, say, the end of the proclamation, where it's talking about governments and everything. Governments will end someday, and so that's not going to be, you know, <laughs> we're going to just have one government under Christ. And so, all right, at some point, yes, that that, that aspect of the proclamation is not going to be <laughs> as, uh, as relevant to what's happening in the world with the second coming of the Savior. But you're right, there's other aspects of the proclamation that uh, it does define as eternal. For example, you have the part about gender being right. an essential characteristic of our pre-mortal, mortal, and eternal identity and destiny, right? So, right? so those aspects of the proclamation are outlined very specifically as, hey, this is, this is eternal right. uh, part, of the, part of the proclamation. It's how it's been. It's how it always will be. And it goes back to the plan of salvation. In this particular case, we have certain things that we might say now as we kind of get into the second half of our discussion of what are those things that are folk doctrines? What are things that some people may treat and talk about as if this is how it is or how it will be eternally, but maybe are not substantial enough to be considered a doctrine? I, For me, the thing that pops directly into my head with this is the stuff that the movie Saturday's Warrior talked about <laughs> and, and some of the assertions that that musical made on behalf of the doctrines that we have taught, uh, you know, that, that we picked our parents or, you know, things like this that may not be considered doctrines. What are some of those other things that maybe stand out to you that you've heard? Well, I think one of them particularly surrounds polygamy, okay. where will we have to practice polygamy in heaven? Is that the, is that the order of heaven? Right. You know, you hear that here and there, and it, it really can upset a lot of people even. Sure. Where, wait, is this really the way it's going to be? How is this, how I'm does this be work? forced into that. Yeah. Right, exactly. I think the church has begun to do some really important clarifications on that. If you go to official declaration number one in the 2013 version of the Latter-day Saint scriptures. So yeah. the, the, current, the current one, you go on the app and you'll see right at the beginning of that, it talks about how monogamy is the standard right? and makes very clear that monogamy is the standard. And then there are some occasions where there may be an exceptions. Jacob 2 is very clear in the Book of Mormon. Jacob says that you shouldn't have any wives except for one. And concubines, you shall have none. Yeah. And then he does say, all right, there are these exceptions where if the Lord commands it, then we'll do this exception. Otherwise, it says, you shall hearken unto these things. And I really think that's an important thing to recognize is that agency is still a part of our decisions around marriage and family. In fact, uh, Elder Richard G. Scott uh, was interviewed on uh, the LDS radio uh, by Sherry Dew. And at one point, Sherry Dew asks Elder Scott, he says, 
you know, how has your marriage with Janine influenced you? And he says, it's impacted everything that I do. And of course, she had passed away at the time. Mm. And he says that he believes there'll be a time when he's standing before the Savior and she's standing before the Savior, his wife. And the question will be asked, do you want this ceiling to continue? And individual will be able to choose what ceilings to continue with and what ceilings not to yeah. continue with. Now, that he was giving that as his opinion on that. But we know full well that all the ceilings that need to be done will be done. And those ceilings that individuals want to have happen, that they are worthy to receive, will have happen. President Joseph F. Smith talked a bit about that, where uh, individuals will have the opportunity to choose those ceilings and there's not going to be any sort of forcing into this arrangement or that arrangement. Right. Yeah. And so that there's that that statement from Elder Scott, while it's not quote unquote doctrine per se, you say it's his opinion, it does accord with the doctrines of agency and so on. So there are things that we can see that we can maybe deduce as as being connected. What are some other things that we may have heard floating around recently or in the past regarding the family that that maybe stand out to you? Well, of course, there's the question of will the family proclamation change, right? Uh, President Oaks, uh, a few conferences ago, even mentioned in his uh, one of his talks that some people regard the, fa- the family proclamation as something that should just, just be changed. And he directly addresses that. And, and we've had many apostles talk about the family proclamation. Just Elder Anderson in this last conference advised us not to pick and choose right. from the proclamation. And of course, uh, the one part of the proclamation that a lot of people are, suspect will change or been theories about there that it would change is that marriage would not only be between man and a woman, but it could be between those of the same gender. And we have had, I could easily count four different apostles that within the last few years have said, this is something that will not change. And of course, if you go to the church's official website, mormonandgay.lds.org, uh, what you'll find on there is a question, will the church ever sanctions same-sex marriages? And the answer there is that central to our doctrine is that marriage in between a man and woman is essential to the plan, and that will not change. Yeah. Even on the recent change with regards to the policy of baptizing children of same-sex couples, where they would say now that they can be baptized with the understanding of certain doctrines and expectations, the very bottom of that release, and I don't know if you caught the the release, it said, this is a doctrine. This will never change. It will not change. Over and over again, it said, this is not how, don't, don't see this as some beacon of change or hope that, that's going to come about, but that this is something that we can hold on to. Now, that obviously is going to rub certain people wrong. Nothing you can really do about that at this point. But it does seem to speak to the idea that these doctrines are about our salvation and the importance of following these doctrines with respect to being saved and exalted, that doesn't, that's not going to change. So how then do we maybe go forward and teach this? Um, how, how do we look at these things and say, this is really what it is, and we invite you to pray about it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what else you can do at that point. Well, I think it's really important to note, and this goes to another 
perhaps folkway or theory that people have is that just because it's true, it should be easy. And it's not. Uh, just because there are eternal truths in the proclamation doesn't make them easy. In fact, most of the truths that we experience are not easy. Just because it's true that getting an education is a really good thing yeah. doesn't mean college is going to be easy. something that's easy. Just because these things are true doesn't necessarily mean they're easy. And we have to be as sympathetic, as empathetic as we possibly can when we teach these things. And understand that there are a lot of different experiences that people have had that would make them either connect more or connect less with these eternal truths that we're, dis that we're discussing here. So just understanding where a person is coming from. A lot of individuals don't really have so much a problem with the proclamation. We've been talking here about that and with uh, great assurance of the proclamation, and that's, I think, exactly the, the, how we should. However, we always need to, I guess I should not say however, but I should say, and along with that, we need to understand that these things can be very difficult for some individuals and, and connecting with them wherever they are is going to be really important, being empathetic to them and loving them as much as we possibly can through this. One of the, if you will, advantages of these things is that um, they're true and the spirit can testify to them. And we don't need to worry too much if people are having, are, are not quite there yet with right. them. They are true. And we can have great assurances in that and that people will eventually, I think, see that. Part of our teaching about it, you say that they're, you mentioned that they're salvific. We can also teach that these go to the very essence of who we are and who God is. The family, the doctrines around the family, teach us about who we are, teach us about our very nature. They go to the core of our identities. And so that's something that I think we can, we can discuss. And, you know, the proclamation starts with heavenly parents. What better way to begin than, than there and talking about God's family? Now, some people aren't quite ready for that yet to say that we have a heavenly mother. For some individuals, that's a real shock. Right. But one thing I like to tell individuals is that at the end of second Nephi, Nephi seems to be anticipating that people aren't going to believe him. And so he says that if you don't believe these words, believe in Christ. And if you believe in Christ, then you shall believe in these words. At some point. <laughs> at some point, at, at anticipating the difficulties that an individual might have with what he's saying, we can anticipate the difficulties that people might have with what we're saying. So how do we help connect those individuals as much as we can with the Savior? And then it's through that that will help them to believe in these things. Yeah. I have a, another – I, I want to put it in the category of folk doctrine, but I think it might be perhaps better to say it's a, a common misunderstanding based on interpretation of language. And that even goes back to the family proclamation with the phrase that the relationship of husband and wife – is that the husband is they're they're co-eternal and co you know co, mm -hmm. they're they're partners they're co-equal, but that you have one that presides. So the common understanding of that is what and what what might be a better way of looking at it. Great question. This this is one that comes up all the time and one that we actually have to work a lot 
on in class. So to preside, you just just that word seems to mean well, they're the boss, right? right? I'm they're, in charge, right? They are in charge, right? You have in a ward. Well, that must be a really good definition of preside because there's the bishop. He presides. He gets to call the Sunday school teacher, and the Sunday school teacher <laughs> right. can't call him, and he releases the <laughs> Sunday school teacher. The Sunday school teacher can't go in and say, "Bishop, you've been a wonderful bishop. I'd like to release you now." Right? That, that's that's not how it works. Right? Uh, we have been taught again and again and again by the prophets that uh, husbands and wives are co-equal. President Hinckley loved to say that it's not the man walking ahead of the woman, nor the woman uh, walking ahead of the man. Elder L. Tom Perry said that there is not a president or a vice president in a family. They are unanimous moving forward. So whatever your definition of preside is for the family relationship, it cannot mean unequal partnership. That cannot be what it means because the prophets have excluded that on a number uh, of occasions. So, 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 so many times, exactly. You have to understand then preside in a different context. And in fact, President Oaks and President Packer a number of years, years ago on two separate occasions said that presiding is different in the church than it is in the home. So saying the bishop is, the, the husband is like the bishop of the home, that's a bad analogy. That's not how it works. It's hierarchical in the church. And in fact, it's interesting President Benson said that Elder Oaks goes on in that statement when he talks about that, that the organization of the family, it's not hierarchical, it's patriarchal. Now, what does that mean? That still sounds like a hierarchy. Uh, That still sounds like a hierarchy. President Benson, on another occasion, he said that the patriarchal order was called such because it passed from father to son. But when we're talking about the patriarchal order, President Benson says that that is the order of family with husband and wife together. So it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't mean that, okay, the husband's the boss. It simply means a order of family that must be equal between husbands and wives. So if you go to the proclamation, you look in there, it says, okay, the father is to preside in the home in love and righteousness. Mm -hmm. And then it also says the wife should be a equal partner in that. So the husband doesn't say, well, I preside and therefore you don't do anything. So similarly, the, the, the mother doesn't say, well, I nurture and you don't do anything, right? It's that they're co-equals in that responsibility. I think one of the best examples of presiding that I've heard what comes from President Eyring. And he told the story, and this was when he was, just after he uh, came into the first presidency, he told the story, and I'm going to use a church example here, but I think it's a really good family example as well, where he was in a, it was his first meeting with the Quorum of the Twelve, the first presidency, when he was the commissioner of education okay. of the, of, for the church. So he went into that meeting and he was excited to see them work together. And he said he was amazed that there was all these arguments and they were discussing, you know, back and forth. And he thought, well, revelation would all just come to them. He said, but then the discussion began to cycle around and every begun, everyone began to agree. And he said he saw the most incredible thing that everybody began to line up in their opinions. Then he said President Lee stood up, Harold B. Lee, and he was presiding at the meeting. And President Irie said he thought, oh, now he's going to announce the decision. And President Lee said, wait a minute. I think we'll bring this up another time. I sense there is someone who is not yet settled. And then they went on. And then at the end, 
President Eyring said he saw one of the 12 go up to President Lee and say, thank you. There's something that I didn't have a chance to say. So in that instance, right, the presider was the one trying to make sure that everybody had their had the say and that they were all unified and that, that they came to a unity in their discussions. And I can't think of any better example of leadership in a family is taking responsibility to make sure that everybody comes to a unity as very best we can. Now, the wife is to help him as an equal partner in that. So if he's not doing a very good job at that, she has the obligation, as the proclamation says, to assist him to make sure that happens, right? If the kids aren't being nurtured, the husband doesn't just say, oh, I guess the kids won't be nurtured, you know. <laughs> no, he needs to jump in to help that happen. Similarly, the wife has an equal say in how that functions and how he, and how he enacts his role as the provider. Yeah. We need to see the proclamation and those roles as outlined there, provide, preside, protect, nurture, not as we're building fences around like, okay, this is my territory, you need to get out, but it needs to be seen as expansive that, oh, these are different roles that have we have in the family. These are areas that husbands and wives have the primary responsibility to watch over, but they have to be enacted as equal partners. Yeah. And it was funny when I asked my wife about the whole preside question, you know, how did, how do you see this and things like that? And she says, I always just took that as a matter of order. Like you got to have one person that kind of is the point person in some respects. It doesn't make them appraise as higher worth or anything like that, but that you have somebody be that point person. And as a matter of order, kind of like the President Lee example, you have one person that is the point of order, the one that keeps things kind of locked together, but it doesn't make them any better, worse, whatever than the other person. It's just a slightly different role. Exactly. And because the wife is an equal partner in that, in that husbands and wives get to discuss how that should be enacted. Right. Right. So, okay, husband, you're the point person on this. All right. Well, let's talk about it as a couple together to come to a unity on how that should be should enacted. Be so in essence, she should have an equal voice in how presiding is to be done. Exactly. If you're going to follow the <laughs> proclamation, that's an obligation yeah. that she has is to do it that way. Yeah. Awesome. What other thoughts are coming to mind as far as the maybe these, these folk doctrines or thoughts that maybe we should probably correct misunderstandings? Is there anything else that's just lingering in your mind? I might go back a little bit to Heavenly Mother okay. and talking about some of the folk doctrines just to make sure that we kind of complete that thought okay. uh, on Heavenly Mother. So, again, some people think that maybe because we don't pray to Heavenly Mother that she's not important. Or maybe that because we don't talk about her as much or we don't know about her as much that somehow she's less than heavenly heavenly father and that's absolutely not true that's absolutely not the case president hinckley has addressed that before that because we don't pray to heavenly mother shouldn't give us some indication of her value her worth should not give us some indication of what happens in the heavens right right one thing i love is that the restoration didn't happen it's happening 
Right. We're, we're in the restoration. And I'm really excited for when we get all the more knowledge about Heavenly Mother. And I think one thing that's important to recognize is that really we probably know about as much as Heavenly Mother as we do about Heavenly Father. We know very little about Heavenly Father. I mean, I guess we could say we know where he was in the spring of 1830, you know, uh, or, or 1820. In, in that moment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but other than, other than that, we really don't have a lot of information. We know that he was a creator and framer of the plan of salvation. Well, past prophets and apostles have talked about Heavenly Mother in the same way. They're both gods. And so we don't actually know a lot about either of those. We do know a lot about, and I think this is important, Jesus Christ. We know where he was born. We know his mother's name. We know his teachings. We know uh, what he did. And so we have a lot of information about him. And I think one thing we can say is that if we were to hear Heavenly Mother's voice from heaven, if we had some scripture that had Heavenly Mother's voice there, what would she say? And one would likely assume that, well, she'd probably say the same thing that Heavenly Father says, which is, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. Yeah. And that... Christ said, none cometh unto the Father but by me. Well, by extension, none would come unto the Mother but by him. Our very best way to get to know our heavenly parents is to come unto Christ. If we want to know them better, we get to know the Savior, Jesus Christ. And I think that's an important aspect that we can, that we can frame that. We don't talk about Heavenly Mother because she's secret. No apostle, again, has ever said that. We use reverence, but we can talk certainly probably more than we usually do about Heavenly Mother. And again, within the proclamation itself, it refers to our Heavenly Parents. And that's a message that we have to all the world. There's also a new Gospel Topics essay on Heavenly Mother that we can refer to. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I tend on this subject to say, what value is there in separating the two when their very essence, their status, their being as gods— are that they are so deeply unified that to separate the two seems to <laughs> offend the very notion of their their position, where they're at in the universe. So to to separate the two just seems like we're missing the point. Sure, and I think we can talk about their unity, and and that's just so. I think that's just so critical. You know, Doctrine and Covenants, uh, one thirty two, nineteen, and twenty, it discusses how again when a man and woman get married then they shall have, and it's they. You, you look through those scriptures, 19 and 20, and it's all about they and them. It's them together. Yeah. And because we talk about Heavenly Father more, again, sometimes people get the feeling that, well, maybe Heavenly Mother's less. You read those scriptures and you understand very clearly that, oh no, it's them together. It's they have all power because all power hath been given unto them. Then shall they be gods because all things are subject unto them. It's just them they, um, the whole way through, the whole way through that. Yeah. Again, because we talk about Heavenly Father more, sometimes people do get the sense, but the restoration clarifies so much on on that matter. I mean, not that long ago in uh, Western history, people were arguing about whether w- women actually had souls, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, where the restoration places women as as deity. Yeah. Right along with God, inseparable yeah. from deity. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for coming in and talking about this, the doctrine of marriage and the family. And of course, there is a lot to talk about. And for those that are able, obviously take his course at BYU. Um, Do you have any other sources that you might suggest that people could check out um, when maybe talking and teaching about the family? 
Uh, I would say that if you look through, BYU has a publication called The Religious Educator. Yes. And in The Religious Educator, there are several articles that are very good about uh, on that. Uh, some even very, fairly recent articles. BYU Studies is now free online. Uh, BYU Studies, that's another journal. They have some information there. The I would definitely go to the churches, if people who are interested in uh, Heavenly Mother. Again, the Gospel Topics essay is fantastic. Polygamy, there's great resources in the Gospel Topics essays. You have for uh, Heavenly Mother, there's a great article called A Mother There. You just type in A Mother There. Oh, yeah. You'll get... Uh, David Paulson's article on e- it. Exactly, exactly. Very good. He reviews everything that the brethren have taught about Heavenly Mother since, well, the beginning of, uh, of the restoration back to Joseph Smith. And so there's a number of, of locations that you can just type in the family, marriage, and you'll get a lot of good uh, articles on that. Of course, the official church resources on that. Uh, those who are interested in LGBTQ issues, of course, mormonandgay.lds.org is a fantastic place. If you want to know how we can talk sensitively about these issues, you just listen to how the leaders of the church talk about it there, and you you yeah. really get a sense of, oh, this is how we can talk about it. And you get the experiences of multiple members of the church from a variety of ex- of different angles there that that are really useful. And it's interesting when you take a subject like polygamy, for example, and you understand the doctrine is that marriage between a man and a woman qualifies us for exaltation, right? We talk about Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother together and understanding those things as important. You go into a subject like polygamy and say, that was a policy and a practice at a time where they were learning about the importance of ceilings and the eternal nature of the family. This was all being restored. And this was a way that they were able to experience that teaching and the, its importance because it was, we need to get as many people sealed as we can. That's, that's, that was the spirit of the, the, the effort. And I think part of that is just another way that nowadays we can see we have family history and we have so many things where we can channel some of that same spirit and energy to having the sealing ordinance go to as many people as we possibly can and understand that this isn't a matter of controversy. It's a matter of understanding the doctrine and trying to have a relationship with it where it benefits our lives and benefits the lives of, of our Heavenly Father's, Heavenly Mother's children. And so I, I love the framework of taking the doctrine first. Then when you have that foundation, you can really understand and apply the rest of its the policies and practices to put them in a perspective that really makes sense but also helps you feel peace about the doctrine itself. Right, exactly. I think that's so, so important. When you go back, I think President Wilford Woodruff, when polygamy changed, he said the following, and, and I bring this up because some people get hung up on those old practices. He said, you have acted up to all the light and knowledge you have had, but you have now something more to do than what you have done. So he's talking about this increase in light that we we have. I think one of the most wonderful increases of light that we have had recently is the family proclamation. Yeah. That helps us to see so much better um, than we have in the past. Again, not that there are particularly new things in there, 
but it helps to bring all those things together to give us more light knowledge than we've had in the past. And it's so important that we don't get hung up on a lot of the old practices that happened and exactly how this or that occurred, but that we understand, hey, we're learning line upon line, precept upon precept, and what a blessing we live in an age that we have 15 prophets, and revelators that can solemnly proclaim certain things that help us to see our pathway through the li- through this life. Yeah. Thank you again for your time. Great. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast. The next episode is our final episode in our basic doctrine series to go over the doctrine of commandments. It's a different approach than you might think, but one that I think is critical to understanding the difference between doctrines and principles versus policies and practices. So please stay tuned for that, and please stay subscribed to this podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, or on Spotify. Thanks for listening.